0: Welcome to FRT episode 91. I'm Brad Carr of the IF, once again in the suburbs of Washington. And indeed, we're hitting the anniversary of when we first shifted to the new remote world last year on episode 63. At that time, we spoke with author Chris Skinner in Warsaw about his new book, Doing Digital. And just like then, we're crossing the Atlantic again today. Our special guest today is Piers Haven, Director of Banking Markets, Innovation and Consumers at the European Banking Authority. Piers has been with the EBA since its inception in 2011, in a career that really builds on the very diverse experiences he had previously, which included working with the UK's former FSA, the Central Banks of South Africa and Swaziland, and also the Economist Intelligence Unit. Piers also continues and adds to a great EBA flavour on FRT. We spoke just a couple of weeks ago with Johanna liebeck lalia of Nordea, who of course is also a member of the Banking Stakeholder Group at the EBA. Piers, thank you for joining us and welcome to FRT. Thanks, pleasure to be here. Piers, it's a, it's an interesting time. It's It's been a sequence of major transitions, really, at the EBA. You had the relocation from London to Paris, which was big news in itself. If I recall correctly, it was a triumphant week for Paris as they not only beat out Dublin to host the EBA, but they also beat the Irish for the rights to host the 2023 Rugby World Cup at the same time. But as well as that location, you, you've had new leadership, and then, of course, COVID, driving an instant shift, really, to the, the work-from-home scenario. What has this meant uh, through these series of transitions for you and, and what you've seen in the team's adaptability and, uh, and really what has stood out for you in, in that process?
1: Well, uh, adaptability is uh, the right word, Brad. I mean, let's start in June 2016. You know, we stood in a circle at work and, and cried. I mean, it was a really sad time because uh, we had the, we had the, the Brexit vote. Um, but, you know, you, uh, the team adapts and move on. And, you know, moving to Paris is hardly a bad thing. As Audrey Hepburn did did not say actually, so uh, she's often quoted as saying Paris is always a good idea, which I agree with. But she actually didn't say it; it was made in the remake of the uh, of the movie Sabrina. Um, uh, but Paris is always a good idea, and it's wonderful to be there. But in that transition, and we also had transition of our leadership. Um, you know, everybody had to learn to adapt and embrace changes. And in particular, many people sort of got used to a trilocation tri-location way of living because they had home country, London to Paris. And for a time, um, you know, there was a lot of movement and we really had to adapt to online engagement, digital working. And that really put us in a good space, I think, for dealing with the pandemic, because like banks, our business continuity plans worked very quickly and worked well. I mean, we um, had to make sure that our systems uh, could support remote working With everybody in different places. Secondly, and for me, very importantly, we really transformed the way our meetings worked. You know, we work in the EU, we have a lot of meetings because we have a lot of interested stakeholders. And suddenly we found that they can be done really well and people adapt to the way that meetings work. So, you know, it's not only the video call, but also the chat. And I really have enjoyed the way that meetings have a new dynamic. I'm looking forward to seeing my friends again in real life, but I hope we keep some meetings online. And for me, the most standout thing actually is the way that colleagues have managed to create support networks for each other um, during this period. So, you know, all of the team meetings are now online and we have team meetings at every level, but I've been amazed at the way that individuals get together and support each other, small groups get together and support each other. And collectively we've found ways of having fun online, which I really would have thought was an oxymoron some time ago. Uh, But you know, whether it be a collective quiz, or a Robbie Burns poetry reading and drinking whiskey together. We've done it all uh, together as a team. And I think that really brings us together. And I mean, the empathy that, you know, my colleagues and friends have shown each other has really helped us get through what has been you know, a pretty difficult time.
0: So I think you make some points on a, a couple of great levels there. You know, firstly, that, that point about the human empathy, I think, is a really important part. And you give some great examples there. But also that the broader sense of adaptability and moving with change, in, in a lot of ways, what you've been through at the EBA is a bit of a microcosm of what's happening across the financial industry writ large and, and probably on an ongoing basis. Uh, and indeed, it probably positions you and the team very well for the industry that you look across uh, and the, the changes that we're seeing with digitalization. And I guess taking that point, um, obviously, the banking industry has seen considerable change through COVID, not only in the operational sense and the work from home dynamic, but that it's been a it's driven a dramatic and sudden acceleration in the shift in customer preferences towards digital channels. As we look ahead into the validity of future business models, the the new look of the industry, what are the technologies that you see as being most important for banks through the current adaptation but more importantly for those future business models?
1: Well, I I, I like what you said actually Brad about the team, I think having a lot more insight into how technology is affecting business and themselves. I, I genuinely think this has made us better uh, regulators and really focus on this concept of technological neutrality, which means neither favoring but certainly not hindering technological developments. And I mean, what we've seen in this sort of digital acceleration shift, I would say, is firstly, and I referenced this earlier, like us, I think many BCP plans worked really well. They've been tested and they work. I guess people. wondering about the cost of those physical backup sites but um, certainly uh, you know we all got online very quickly and you know what we've seen is that banks have also had to scale up uh, plans for digital transformation so um, we did a questionnaire for banks for our risk assessment report in 2020 and 50 percent of banks in that survey have increased their i.t spending already and 60 percent have increased their budget on new digital offerings but I think what's really important here is that it's been a sort of inside and outside change, as in for the banks, they have had to change the way they're working at the same time, simultaneously, that their customers have expected uh, changes. And so what we're seeing, and again, at what our survey shows us is, that uh, I mean, what, cloud has been a driver of a lot of these changes. And maybe we'll talk about that a bit later. But, you know, 75% of EU banks are using the cloud up from 20, up 26% from just two years Earlier, and that's allowed the. Uh, I think it has facilitated a lot of the remote working by a banks' own employees, but also facilitated a lot of the digital engagement with their customers. I mean, for us, the payment space has been particularly active, and again, we were already doing a lot that has actually helped support that. So we had rules on strong customer authentication. This is the stuff that keeps people safe online, and we were already rolling that out, and I think that's been helpful. But we did other stuff, sometimes the small things actually appear quite big so we we suggested that payment service providers across the eu increase the contactless limit to 50 euros that actually made a difference because often it was 20 or 30 euros before this has really helped in the pandemic digital onboarding has been a big area that we have seen a massive increase and that's using image recognition um, and kyc workflow automation uh, and I know that you had, I think, Greg from Secure Key on one of these podcasts recently, Brad, and I'm sure he sp- spoke a lot about that, as well as transaction monitoring and monitoring via uh, algorithms has been a big uh, part. So I think the, the cloud technology driving a lot of the uh, digital transformation has been very important. And again, I would make a link then to the use of big data and the importance of having effective processing power to use that big data. And again, you need the uh, processing power, because everyone's working online, because your customers are trying to get uh, digital engagement, but because your business model is changing to make much better use of big data, whether that be in the space of transaction monitoring, or whether it be in the sort of credit space. And I think the credit space, and again, we might come to this later, Brad, but the credit space is very interesting, because I think in Europe, the use of uh, the sort of big data and AI in the credit spaces is still reasonably supportive. But what we have seen in the pandemic is that there need to be a lot of decisions made very quickly. And some of these are less about sort of credit decisions and more processing. So we have seen uh, many customers take up the moratoria that has been offered. So these are loan moratoria. And I think in Europe, we had around 930 billion of loans go through that moratoria process. That's an incredible amount of processing, even if often it wasn't so much a credit decision as an identification of that's the loan that exists and the moratoria applies because these were standard moratoria loans. But we've also had 284 billion of new loans provided under government guarantees. And again, the pressure was on financial institutions to extend those loans very, very quickly. And they've really had to make use of technology uh, to uh, make some of those decisions,
0: you hit on a number of really important points, there, there Piers, and I think you, know, you started there with the, the point about the contactless payment limits. And I think that was one of the really great policy successes we saw very early in the the pandemic response. That a lot of European countries, I remember Hungary, Croatia, and the UK, were all very quick off the mark in in doubling or more their limits. And uh, and I think that was a, a really great supportive response. But amongst those technologies you, you refer to there, there's the importance of cloud and there's the role of big data, which uh, we'll talk about a little bit further in terms of the the usage through AI and, and machine learning. You make me think a lot of a, a comment that Professor Chris Brummer at Georgetown University made last year about, you know, banks facing into this dilemma of, on one hand, how do I achieve economies of scale? And also, how do I also concurrently deliver the personalization and customization that, that customers are coming to expect? And I think cloud is a really key underlying enabler for each of those things. So I wonder if we can take a, a moment just to talk a little bit further about that. And I kind of feel like there was an inflection point in the the immediate pre-COVID period where industry executives and CROs were starting to come to the realization that the, the business risk of not moving to cloud and being left behind and not being able to do some of these big data analytics as a result, that that business risk really started to outweigh the the technical or operational risks, or the challenge of an imp- implementing something new, and I feel like the pandemic has just really become overwhelming and and just tilted the the balance of that assessment just so much more heavily in that direction. Uh, talking to our member firms, we hear a lot about this accelerated or accentuated um, urgency now about cloud. I was just wondering if you get a similar sense of that in terms of the the criticality of this technology for supporting future business models.
1: I would tend to agree, and I very glad that you used the term inflection point rather than turning point, because I think this was a journey we were already on. And it's, you know, we've, uh, there's a lot of talk about digital acceleration. This was a digital leap um, that I really see uh, that we uh, took. I mean, I I referenced earlier that, I mean, when, from our understanding, at least 75% of EU banks are using the cloud. And I really do think that we're, I'm, I'm very pleased to say this, in the space where there are real business decisions to be made, But that is partly because we got a lot of the regulatory and supervisory issues out of the way in the sense that from 2016, we've been working on issues around the cloud as part of our efforts. I referred to technological neutrality earlier to make sure that we're not somehow artificially hindering the rollout of new technology. And so we put forward a series of recommendations in 2018, which instead of simply saying no, encourage supervisors to identify the kind of questions they had to ask whether they're about security, auditability, the extent of subcontracting, so chain uh, uh, outsourcing. And so I, I'm really pleased to say, I think a lot of those discussions were already had. I think that um, financial institutions understood supervisors' concerns and questions. And so, you know, knew what kind of actions they had to take to move forward with the cloud. And it really was a business decision. Um, and I think you're right in saying, Brad, that, you know, that business decision has really been pushed in a particular way by the enhanced um, digitalization that we've gone through, whether it be the need to yeah, have their own workers able to access all of the systems that they need, whether it be the need to just process more transactions online because customers are no longer going to the branch. They want to do their banking uh, online but also because of the changing nature of the, some of the services offered. And, you know, you've, you've sort of hit the nail on the head when you talked about the need to really get data crunching for uh, machine learning uh, in, in place. And I think that that has been behind a lot of the uh, new activities that banks are doing. And if you want to be resilient and have scale and be adaptable, so your point about scale and sort of personalization, then it's true that you really do need a lot more processing power and that the availability for that and if certainly if you want to get that quickly and have some adaptability in the amount of processing power that you use has been in the cloud i mean i do think i started off possibly maybe i was too confident in saying you know we got the regulatory obstacles out of the way but i think we did get a lot of those out of the way i think there's a bit more stuff that we might be able to do i mean a a simple thing brad i mean when you know when banks are using cloud outsourcing I see one of the more recent concerns that they have is how energy intensive is that cloud outsourcing? I think they want to know about where that energy is coming from. Um, So in another part of my life, I spend a lot of time looking at ESG criteria. And I mean, certainly within the EU, we have ESG disclosure requirements, both for large corporates and banks, which are matched. And I think I certainly think that there's a public policy space for making sure that banks can ensure that both their ESG strategies and their cloud strategies work together and i think we can facilitate that perhaps more importantly you know there's, there's stuff that we can do to try and get some consistency in ict requirements across uh, across different parts of the financial sector which will again help or whether there might be standardized contractual clauses uh, that will uh, help financial institutions make decisions about cloud outsourcing so there's a bit more i think on the regulatory side that can happen but again, I think the digital decisions, uh, sorry, the business decisions are clearly there, driven by the uh, increased digitalization. Uh, and I think indeed there will only be more reliance on the cloud as we move towards these business models that are both digital in terms of the transaction, but also digital in terms of the underlying power of the, uh, the decision making, the services being offered.
0: I agree. It's been a, a huge a huge lift in terms of the level of policy progress that's been made in, in a relatively short space of time, given how, how vital and how pervasive this technology is. Uh, it's a really interesting point you make about ESG, and I think probably the level of energy usage we've seen associated with Bitcoin mining has probably raised the consciousness of this. And the scenarios we see of, of Bitcoin mining farms popping up in obscure parts of the world because there's cheap power and the like has, has probably sharpened the minds on that. But one other specific policy area that, that we hear a lot about is the, the issue of concentration risk. And certainly we hear a number of officials that have the concern that so much of the industry relies, at least in the Western jurisdictions, really on, on three major providers. If I can roll a couple of thoughts together here, you know, interested on whether that's a concern that, that you share, um, whether there are particular thoughts or maybe expectations around some of the, the possible mitigants, and, and whether this is a specific issue that you think will draw a a heightened supervisory focus to the providers themselves.
1: Absolutely. I think this is a critical issue. I mean, when you're outsourcing to the cloud, you're not outsourcing your canteen to buy cheese sandwiches from somewhere else, are you? You know, you are, this is a fundamental part. And this point about responsibility actually is really important. Concentration is key. I think the FSB uh, in 2019 identified concentration from a financial stability perspective I mean there's a real issue there from a from a reliance on a few providers and a few bits of infrastructure um, and if banks are going to continue to be responsible to their customers and for their data they need to think about concentration in 2019 the same year as the FSB report we uh, gave advice to the European Commission on the need to monitor risks better including about concentration because we were so worried about concentration already in 2018 in our recommendations actually on Outsourcing to the cloud. We had said, Brad, that both banks need to be cognizant of the extent of aggregate concentration of the uh, outsourcers they were using, but also supervisors should monitor that. But, you know, sometimes it can be quite hard, I think, for a bank to fully appreciate the extent of the financial stability implications of their own individual outsourcing, because you really need to look at that as a system as a whole. So, whilst I think it remains the case that we would want financial institutions to be cognizant about risks of uh, concentration because eventually responsibility uh, continues to sit with them i think we need to have more public policy engagement in issues around uh, concentration the european commission based on some advice that we gave before is indeed thinking about that in in the form of legislation the dora legislation and in that they're thinking about how can we create some oversight of out cloud third party providers in order to understand properly risks now of course that's a range of risks around ICT risks, not only concentration, but you know there is issues that they should be identifying that w- would help then create public policy responses. so what sort of outcomes would you expect to see? well, certainly from an individual bank perspective, as I emphasized, responsibility would continue to remain with an individual bank, and I think we would expect them to really reflect on multi-cloud strategies, or multi-cloud use strategy, how can they ensure they have some backups uh, themselves. But from a public policy perspective, I guess, let's say the overseer starts to see specific concentration risks, there are things that they uh, can do by providing recommendations either for the individual cloud service provider or for the users of cloud service providers. And I think this is really interesting. I know that um, Fernando Restoy at the FSI has published a paper on issues around activity versus entity-based supervision. And this is perhaps obliquely related to that, but let me make the point anyway. I mean, when we start to have oversight of third-party providers, again, we should be very careful about responsibility here. But when we start to have some oversight, we are starting to look a little bit at the entities providing cloud services. So when we have an overseer, Looking at cloud service providers as an entity, they're able to see what they are doing. And I think there's a matrix intersection here between activity supervision, so the activity of cloud service provision and the entity supervision, both looking at the individual cloud service provider, but also the entity supervision of the financial institutions who are using that cloud service provision. And I think it's a it's going to be an increasing part of the digital landscape to have this matrix of entity and activity-based supervision that we will need to be alive to.
0: Yeah, I think that's right, Piers. I think you know that there is clearly a need for some sort of matrix view there across entities and, and activities, and it's not a, a simple question of one or the other of those approaches, albeit it's, it's a challenging piece as to how you get that right. And obviously, you want to be uh, providing sufficient scope and informed scope without creating unnecessary added overhead or duplication in that approach. So it's, it's not an easy one to get right, I imagine, but a, an important one.
1: Absolutely, as well as avoiding issues around moral hazard, because again, clearly, you know, we the public authorities are not then eventually responsible for all ICT risks in the system. We need to make sure that responsibility sits um, where where it lies. But of course, and there, there are other elements, I think, coming into this that we will uh, have to keep an eye on. I think the, you know, in addition to the sort of first phase concentration that the overseer might see looking through that to chain outsourcing will be important. I think In addition, I mean, part of the benefits of having an overseer and also with a a framework that encourages single set of ICT uh, risk management, or at least a comparable set, starts to create opportunities for interoperability. And so therefore, you can actually encourage further diversification in the sector. And I think those will also reap benefits. So there's a sort of direct monitoring of concentration and indirect benefits from public policy uh, engagement.
0: Yeah, I think how you promote that diversification is, is another one of the great challenges that that we collectively, I think, all need to face into. And you know, one, one point I, I really find challenging is, on one hand, you think because of the concentration that it's really important that we have sufficient oversight of the three major cloud service providers themselves. But at the same time, you don't want that to become a new barrier to entry and that it concentrates, it inadvertently becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy that deters a financial institution from working with somebody outside of those three. I keep saying it's a it's a very brave banker that's going to stand in front of their board risk committee and say I've decided to outsource some of our important functions to one of the providers, which is not one of the major three, if those three are, are supervised and and subject to oversight. Uh, where we do really want to help promote and encourage others to enter that market. So it's a it's a tricky one as to how you get sufficient oversight and, and supervision and control without making it harder for a, a new entrant to, to come along and compete.
1: Absolutely. That, in, in a way, that's very much a part of our life in many areas, whether that be in the payment space or in the cloud uh, outsourcing space. And our again, our concept of technological neutrality means not favoring or hindering a technology. But importantly, we always stress not favoring or hindering an incumbent or a new entrant. And we need to find ways of making sure uh, that we have that uh, level playing field. And as I say, I think from a public policy perspective, simply by setting standards that everyone recognizes, you can indeed facilitate uh, new entrants and facilitate the ability also to move between providers, which is absolutely crucial if we're to get some diversity uh, and therefore resilience into the uh, system.
0: Piers, I'd like to to pivot the conversation a little now, you spoke earlier in terms of some of the significant new technologies, and we talked about cloud and, and big data, and big data, perhaps if I extend into the area of machine learning and artificial intelligence. Uh, an area we very much see that that continues to gather pace and, and our IIF surveys have shown increased adoption. Interestingly, we've seen an increased adoption in the the small and medium enterprise segment um, in credit assessment, moving beyond the initial focus that we saw in, in mortgages and credit cards. But also there's increased application in fraud and anti-money laundering use cases as well wondering if there are particular areas that perhaps you find most promising for areas where this technology can help to improve risk management.
1: Absolutely. Although I think it's really interesting to look at the global picture, which you're referring to and what's happening in Europe, because I think there might be a little bit of differences. I mean, when we've sort of asked banks about the use of AI, and by the way, we've produced reports on big data and data analytics and machine learning. I mean, 64 of EU banks are using AI in some form or other when we ask them where they're using it and actually we're in the middle of a uh, survey at the moment so i can't give the results but i can sort of, i know i've been talking to the guys doing it so i have a sense i mean what we do see actually is compliance is really big on ai and big data i mean in some ways it also just the basic bot compliance is but that's more logic programming i think than it is true adaptable machine learning so where we see the sort of real ai rollout in the aml cft space we see absolutely actually i think i think in europe brad that's probably at the forefront of where we're seeing machine learning being applied certainly in 50 percent or more of solutions in the in the aml cft space we're seeing ai ml being applied today and i think that goes hand in hand with the cloud usage and that's you know image recognition robotic processing, transaction monitoring. So there's an incredible amount going on there. And that's really helping uh, also with the digital onboarding and monitoring of transactions. I think the credit space is really interesting. I mean, you you said, well, you know, you made it sound almost as though, well, obviously in retail, it's all reliant on AI. And now we're moving into SME. I think in the, and I alluded to this earlier, I think in the EU, a lot of the in the credit space traditionally, well, traditionally, in recent years, AI has been rolled out as a support function for credit models. And as you know, that's particularly important in the regulatory capital space where there are specific requirements for credit uh, models. And at the same time, all of these credit models, of course, have used statistical techniques and data analytics. But again, that's that's different. What I think is interesting is. In the use of AI and machine learning in, for example, credit offering. Now, I referred earlier to the fact that in the in this during the pandemic, you've had to process a lot of loans. And again, processing doing some aspects of processing, some aspects of approving moratorium is a bit different from the credit offering. And I think here on the credit offering, it's a very difficult space, partly because on the regulatory side, you know, it's really important that credit models can be explainable. And auditable, and that's an interesting challenge in the machine learning and AI space, but also because in the credit space, perhaps more, although I bet there are listeners who would beg to differ, but perhaps more in the credit space, you really have got a point, this point about what we might say a dual materiality. So you know you've got the impact of the bank of maybe getting it wrong with AI and machine learning, but you've also got a societal impact. And there's very much an analogy again with ESG where we talk about. Dual materiality uh, and you know the activities of a bank affecting the risks both to the bank's balance sheet and to uh, society. And here in the credit space, I really see the dual materiality really coming to the fore. Now, I, having said that and talked about these sort of two different types of applications, I guess I have a question as to whether that matters from a institution's perspective. Because do you need different ways of approving AI? or do you need one way? And I I have to say, I really sense that, given the risks, um, uh, both the benefits to risk management of AI and machine learning, whether it be in the digital onboarding space, or or whether it be in processing vast amounts of information to assess credit risk. um, I mean, incredibly helpful for risk management, incredibly helpful for tackling implicit bias in humans, but also major risks of risk amplification. It's a risk amplification, which I think is really scary. I suppose it means that you need a sort of organization-wide approach to uh, AI, one that you want a sort of consistent framework and system for uh, AI assessment and approval.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And I wonder, thinking about that, that point you make of the, the dual materiality and how I, I agree with you, I think this is most important in the areas of credit assessment where we have consequences for The ability of a particular individual or a particular group of society to be able to access credit. I think from a firm's perspective, a firm would say that they have a much higher threshold for explainability and transparency for those particular functions. You don't want to stand in front of a customer and give them the explanation of computer says no, which is perhaps a different threshold that you might have compared to a a fraud prevention mechanism where the level of transparency perhaps doesn't need to be so high. At the customer-facing end, so I think there's a, an interest from the firm in terms of its own reputation to have that that strong level of, of explainability for a, a credit um, application model. But I think probably to your point about some of the societal impacts, that probably compounds that 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 same viewpoint that that if if the risk is that somebody is going to be excluded from the from the market from the sector, being able to have that explainability and transparency, and and perhaps it is a body like the EBA that is one of the few that can look across the industry that can perhaps make an assessment of whether we have a degree of homogeneity emerging in everybody's models, or whether there is still some diversity across the sector, and uh, maybe this is a question of where, to to what extent the EBA's um, whether EBA's mandate finishes and that of a competition or consumer protection mandate from from another agency begins, perhaps.
1: Well, I I completely agree with that, but maybe the the answer is in making sure that we are joined up because the the nature of the risks means it probably strays a little bit between some of the simple prudential risks, consumer risks, competition risks, and broader societal risks. So I think there's a job for us to do, although by the way, inside the EBA we already have a bit of a consumer protection uh, mandate. So we've already started writing about some of these issues. Because I think there are, you know, with dual materiality actually in a sense, also for us in the regulatory space, you know, we're worried about the soundness of individual institutions. We're also worried about financial stability writ large. So I think we can speak to that. But it also requires us to be uh, uh, joined up. But maybe that's an interesting parallel, Brad, to also what you would expect from a bank. Because I think one of the things that I worry about is, you know, AI, building AI models is not a discrete activity. I mean, back to my cheese sandwich, it's not just making a cheese sandwich. It's something that, it you know it really changes the way that the organization is doing business so i think uh, it would be you know very dangerous if ai models operated in a silo somewhere inside an institution and much more important it's really important that i think when looking at those models you have a sort of layering of knowledge and responsibility from you know the developers who are thinking about the training data and the parameters of freedom of the model. And by the way, I'm guessing if if the statistics I see are correct, probably 90% of those developers are men, just a wild guess. But you know, that seems to be the the sort of ballpark figure. So you've, you've got some interesting challenges there about who's building the models. But then you've got the senior management view who have to have a view on the societal and the bank impact, thinking a little bit about what they expect from explainability and auditability identifying what they think is appropriate in terms of human intervention and i really liked your point about you know their own threshold for reputational risk if they can't stand in front of a customer and explain what's happening i mean i think that's a really important question that senior management boards can indeed get to grips with so if you want to build the elements of trust in ai and machine learning i really think that you need to have a sort of integrated approach across an organisation so as much as you've raised the challenge i think to me and more broadly to the public policy space about who is going to look at this and monitor it and i think again we have a we do have a role uh, we've already done some work there and i hope we will be doing more this year uh, and next but again we need to be joined up with other parts of the system whether it be consumer protection or whether it be the data protection guys so inside an organisation i really think you need a joined up approach to ensure that you build a, let's call it, I don't know, ethics by design approach to your artificial intelligence model, one that works for you as a bank in terms of your balance sheet, but also for you as a bank in terms of your stated objectives in society, which brings me a little bit back to the ESG point. You'll forgive me for harping on that a bit, but I see these things all being linked.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think you've probably given a, a very neat segue to a, a point I wanted to touch on where you allude to ensuring that the different parts of the, the organization are linked up. And, and one issue we've seen emerge in our machine learning model governance work has been about the, the intersection of the responsibilities of the risk function and the data management function. Uh, and if I can tell a couple of quick anecdotes, when we had a, an IIF chief risk officer forum last September uh, about the ethical use of data, the conversation very much gravitated to this point. It's one that, that ABA Bank Cambodia uh, chief risk officer Torsten Klein-Buning made on, on FRT episode 71 about how he as chief risk officer needs to be close to the chief data scientist. But I've also heard a couple of our, our member firms go even further. Um, Ping An co-CEO Jessica Tan has talked about how you really need to make sure that you get all functions of the institution together, not just uh, uh, risk and, and data, but also legal and privacy and the product owners and the business line leaders. And I'm Rokoni in the Canadian government, the uh, the Chief Data Officer at Employment Canada, she talks about how most critically, that means you really need to have a corporate culture that is conducive to enabling that kind of collaboration of all of those different functions. And I just wanted to invite any reaction you had, Piers, in terms of, of whether that that notion resonates with you and, and whether this is an area that the banking industry needs to make further progress on. It
1: certainly resonates uh, with me. And I really think it brings a degree of um, tangibility to when we talk about culture here because you know the I, I was referring earlier to the link between say the developers and senior management you really need to develop a culture where you have a common understanding of what are the expectations for the bank both for their own bottom line and also from the impact on uh, society and I completely agree that you need to bring together and it's more than just obviously the uh, the guys building the models and uh, senior management it's across functions i mean you referred to the sort of chief data officer the chief risk officer clearly you need to be in there thinking about privacy you need to be thinking about uh, legal risk you need to be thinking about what how your customers are going to experience this model and back to your example Brad of you know other business guys going to be able to explain to their customers how this decision was made which is absolutely why you need the product designers and the business line leads uh, in there uh, as well. Because if they feel it's very hard to explain, uh, that outcome starts to undermine the model a little bit in the first uh, instance. So absolutely, you need a joined up approach. And I think that um, it's not only is it a tangible example of culture, I think it can also drive culture in a way. I mean, I hear uh, others complain that sometimes the discussion about sort of conduct and culture can be a little bit woolly because, you know, it's like, let's be nice to people. But I think here, when you're designing this kind of uh, AI model, thinking about, again, the data inputs that you have, thinking about the parameters that you would allow that self-learning model to pursue, thinking about the degree of human intervention, and how comfortable you are, or maybe with some of the outcomes of that model. It really is a great way of crystallizing what you think should be the right culture of your organization.
0: If we can, if we can touch on the ethical use of data, um, and uh, and I think you know probably linking to a, a point you just made there, peers about the the reputational position of a bank and and tying this to financial outcomes, you know we've certainly seen things like the the Bank of England Future of Finance report that noted that you know banks are very well viewed in the way that they use and protect data, and that this is perhaps a commercial opportunity, a point of differentiation for them so long as they're able to maintain that position and, and, and keep that trust. But certainly, you know, here in the US, uh, there's been, I think, an amplified focus in the last six to 12 months on issues like algorithmic bias and discrimination. You know, I guess in part, this came from the issues of social injustice that really came to the fore politically here in, in 2020. It's really amplified attention in the public domain. Uh, there's greater scrutiny of social media companies and how they use data at the moment. Interested in, in hearing from you on, on whether there's a similar sense, a similar focus of that in, in Europe, and perhaps whether there are particular measures or processes to help guard against discriminatory outcomes that you might expect from banks.
1: Very much so. I mean, issues around bias and fairness featured heavily in a report that we produced in 2019 on AI and big data, and it's one of the key seven, seven elements of trust. I think one of the ironic things, I guess, about machine learning and AI is in many ways you could see. AI being designed to avoid some of the biases, so avoiding some of the heuristics that we have as humans, so, you know, the baseline bias where you sort of forget sometimes that actually there is a main uh, outcome, or the implicit bias that uh, many parts of society have against maybe other parts of society. And you can ensure that a AI program identifies those and moves away from those. Also, I note that machines tend not to have the same Uh, sales incentive bias that remuneration could sometimes lead to. So there's an incredible amount that we can do. But ironically, I guess at the same time, the risk of bias is heightened in particular because of the risk of amplification of bias. So if you you have a uh, machine that is looking at social media to try and get data, and we know how quickly particular views can amplify on social media also, by the way, as exemplified by some of the uh, bots that we've seen tried by some of the big data companies, and I think you had Catherine Perry from DeepView talking also about sort of social media and ethics type types issues. I mean, there's a real risk that without very tight control and effective oversight, machines can amplify some of that bias. So that's a real concern. Amplification, I think, is a is a real concern. And this point about you know historical data is absolutely key. I was very lucky to spend a couple of years working in the South African Reserve Bank and dealing with banks and credit models. And there, clearly, there are lots of issues around the past data sets not being appropriate for the future Uh, and thinking about how to acknowledge some of those gaps and thinking about how to deal with the dynamics in the data and also ensure that you don't pick up on sort of inadvertent clues that actually hold bias in there. So, you know, geographical location uh, or educational background themselves can be uh, loaded data. And you really need to look at and uh, acknowledge that now, I mean it's quite tricky because I'm sure that many of your viewers listeners will be saying, well, then what what are banks supposed to do? so we've got we have got this historical data set which reflects uh, society. again, just another ESG analogy by the way, you know if you look at banks lending in the past today and the future, you would expect that to be very different. I mean, if you looked at a green asset ratio for banks today, it would be quite low, but it would necessarily be higher in the future. And similarly, on data, what is it that banks should be doing? to understand the issues in uh, previous data sets. And, you know, for me here, I would, there's actually, if I may make a slightly tangential reference, but there's an artist called Mimi Onohua, who has a piece called The Library of Missing Data Sets. And it's very, I find it a very compelling piece because it talks about missing data sets and the missing in data sets, creating this sense of lack and ought. And I think that being aware of some of the missing data sets that we have in society is absolutely uh, crucial. So I agree this is a problem bigger than individual banks, but acknowledging and understanding where the gaps in the historical data set are, acknowledging and understanding the risks of bias arising out of that data set is absolutely uh, crucial. And I think it's uh, something for us all to uh, reflect on. And again, as you build AI machines, ethical by design, I think these are the kind of issues that you need to uh, build in.
0: Yeah, absolutely. These are these are great fundamental challenges, really, that we we have to face into. And, and the South African example you mentioned, I think, is a really pertinent one. Fahada Mod of, of Nedbank described this for us once previously on FRT. And in the US, I think we see a lot of the, the, uh, the discussion at the moment, as you see, particularly some of the big tech companies bringing forward new AI solutions, is that we have 200 years of uh, racially discriminatory outcomes that are now embedded in the data sets that you could pick up today. And you could simply easily replicate what's already come from those outcomes. Or maybe there's an opportunity, maybe we can use this technology to perhaps uh, break that cycle and and hopefully create some sort of some sort of fresh start. Piers, to, to conclude, I wanted to ask you a bit about the EU digital finance strategy announced in September 2020. And You've you've actually alluded to this a little already in terms of the the mandate for the EBA and how you work together with with other other mandates within the EBA, but also other agencies. But I thought it was really telling that, that the Commission invited the EBA to explore the possibility of, of developing regulatory and supervisory guidance on the use of AI applications. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that and and in terms of of how you're pursuing that, how you integrate the traditional banking supervisory perspective together with some of those other really interesting societal interests that you touched on, like data protection and privacy and consumer protection.
1: Well, I mean, this is a big unknown for us. And the digital finance strategy holds a lot of new mandates for us, actually, whether it be on the crypto side, whether it be on the cloud side or whether it be on the AI side. What I really think is that on the AI side, you know, we, we have a sense of some of the issues we need to tackle. I alluded to the seven sort of elements of trust, and I think we really need to reflect on those, those elements of trust and think how we can build that out. So that's you know, making your machines ethical by design, ensuring explainability, uh, ensuring fairness and avoiding bias, ensuring traceability, thinking about issues of data protection, security, and consumer protection. And if we think about those elements, what that means, I think, for us, and Brad, it actually goes a little bit back to the challenge that you put to me before, is that we really need to think about how the prudential regulatory world is interacting with some of these other worlds, such as data protection, uh, ICT security, uh, consumer protection. And again, I think we're putting in some of the building blocks now. So an ICT security, having common ICT framework across the financial sector, having common Penetration, threat testing uh, will be uh, really important. Making sure that we link up with the consumer protection side is going to be important. And you know, engaging with the uh, data supervisors is something that, well, maybe we need to do more on. But also then thinking about some of these issues around accountability and societal and environmental expectations will be important, which is why I'm so pleased that we're working both on ESG and this at the uh, same time. These things are not separate but there is a clear link and i expect that we'll be able to make those links between different areas of the policy framework going forward and at the same time thinking about the interaction then between existing players and potential new players whether it be small fintechs or big technology companies Uh, and thinking again about this matrix of entity and activity to try and ensure that we don't have gaps in the
0: system well, Peter, it's been a great discussion. Thanks, thanks so much for joining us. We've we've covered a lot of ground with your great insights, uh, as always, and a, I think a, a really great holistic snapshot of really the the major major issues we're seeing across certainly the European industry, but I think probably uh, with a lot of global commonality as well. If I can quickly recap on just probably some of the the takeaways from amongst your comments, you know, reflecting on some of that that immediate COVID response, the things like the contactless limits, the digital online authentication, and and where that's driving a lot of the the progress we're seeing in digital identity but also the the many uh, applications, the many opportunities, the many issues that we face in terms of how we use big data. And in cloud, I think it's really significant where you call out the, the policy ground that was laid as far back as 2016. And I think it's a, a really important message of, of how that's helped to inform and to enable the journey that we're all on together now. Enormous regulatory and policy progress made already. And now I think probably at this point where we, we focus a little more heavily, uh, zeroing in perhaps a little more on the issue of the concentration risk also, I thought a really interesting insight you mentioned about that ESG focus in terms of where the the cloud energy is is sourced from, uh, and that's one that we're we're going to have to give more attention to. In the machine learning space, um, you know the really prominent growth that you've seen in Europe, especially in the areas of, of AML and fraud uh, and compliance functions, in the areas where machine learning is used for credit, the greater emphasis uh, on explainability and transparency, and this notion that you talked about of the dual materiality, and I, I think it's a, a great point for us to reflect on. And uh, and in particular, to reflect on that shared challenge in in how we face into that, how we link up across different functions that the the challenge that you have at the EBA with the prudential mandate and consumer protection and and competition and others, and concurrently that same uh, challenge that's faced for a lot of banks in terms of how they bring together their various different functions across risk management and data management and many more across their organisations. The point you made about the art of missing data sets, I think is a really important one that that, um, we need to reflect on and explore further as well. And probably lastly, I'll just go back to where we started. Uh, I thought it was a great point you made in terms of the, uh, the EBA's own adaptability. And I think it's it's great to see the journey that you've been through with that and, and how that's given you, I think, a, a really strong ability to resonate and to relate with an industry which is itself perpetually, I think, in, in, a, in a state of change. And the way you link that to the notion of, of supporting innovation in a way that is not favoring and not hindering any particular technologies or providers. So, Piers, it's been a great discussion. Really appreciate you sharing those and many other thoughts with us. Thanks for being with us on FRT. Thank you so much, Brad. Beautifully
1: summarized, by the way.
0: You're very kind. And, and ahead on FRT, a few upcoming guests that I want to highlight. And Piers has actually set us up very nicely here with the theme of artificial intelligence and machine learning, which is going to feature prominently in our next few episodes. We're going to speak with the Bank of England on the excellent AI during COVID paper that they published in their recent quarterly bulletin. Uh, Shamit Kundu, former Chief Data Officer at Standard Chartered, uh, he's going to share the insights of what he's now seeing across the industry with these technologies in his new capacity at True Era. Chris Steele of KPMG is going to join us to discuss the emerging trends in regtech. We're going to talk AML and financial crime with Adrian De La Casa at Unicredit. And I'm going to catch up with Steve Suarez, Global Head of Innovation, Finance and Risk at HSBC. And Steve and I actually co-presented On Machine Learning to the Bale Committee's SIG about three years ago. So we'll revisit that discussion as well as the broader transformation agenda that he's promoting at HSBC. So please stay safe. We look forward to you joining us for those upcoming episodes. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for listening on FRT.